Well, um, I, I bet a lot of people haven't read Doc, uh, Zephaniah. In fact, um, you may have trouble finding it. What, what page is it on in, in your Bible? Uh, 1003. 1003. So uh, feel free to start searching. Um, um, when I do uh, travel and speak uh, and, and do some training about how we can communicate our faith to a world that keeps changing, um, very often people ask me, okay, so what's, what's the most important thing? And I, I never know how to answer that question. I, I don't know if there's a most important thing. Sometimes people want to know, well, I mean, is the most important thing having like a really clear, concise, short presentation of the gospel message? I go, well, that, yeah, that would be good. That, I, I, I like that. And, uh, and then people say, well, how about, you know, is the most important thing to have answers to questions, to anticipate the questions people are going to ask us and no answers? I say, well, yeah, I, li I like that idea too. That's, that's also very good. I, I don't know what's the most important. I do know one thing, though, that, and what I want to zoom in on, and that I think it's often neglected, and that is um, um, preaching the gospel to ourselves, to, to, to meditate on and ruminate and think about just how wonderful this message is. Um, to marinate our minds and our hearts in this great message so that when we're telling people about what we believe, they're, they're not just impressed with, oh, we really believe this or we really think it's true, but we, we can't, we, it's just amazing to us that how good it is. And I, I find that the, the more we could develop the biblical practice of meditation, of of mulling over and thinking deeply about what God has said in all of his scripture, even a place like Zephaniah, um, the more we can meditate on that, the better off we will be as individuals in our own personal, emotional, spiritual health, and also in how we reach out with love to people and how we connect with them. Um, you know, I... Um, uh, occasionally I, I struggle with some bouts of depression that may be surprising to you but um, and so I'm constantly reading things about how to overcome this or how to fight it and uh, not too long ago I was listening to an audiobook on uh, tips for overcoming depression it was very very helpful for me and I talked about different things like exercise is very good sunshine is very very good uh, friendships are very very important so I'm very thankful for my friendship with Mark he's so much cheaper than psychotherapy um, <laughs> Uh, so there's all sorts of different things you can do, but as I'm listening to this audio book driving around, one of the things they say is uh, it's very important about how you ruminate. Uh, people who struggle with depression tend to ruminate in negative directions and they mull over things and they have internal arguments and they can ruminate in negative directions. And uh, as I'm driving, I'm thinking, um, well, I'm glad I don't have that problem. I don't, I don't ruminate that much. And then I thought, well, it depends on what, what he means by ruminating. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of ruminating. There's intellectual ruminating, but there's also emotional ruminating. And even within intellectual ruminating, it's probably like a definitional form. But then there's sort of like a theoretical, a theological, philosophical. And then I started laughing at myself. You don't ruminate. I, I'm the poster child of ruminating. <laughs> I, I sent a note to a friend of mine. I was saying, I, I, you know, I heard this thing about ruminating. Do you think I ruminate? He wrote back. He says, I'm just sitting here laughing. He says, it's a, it, three days after you and I have had coffee, you send me these lengthy emails. I, you know, I've been thinking more about our time together. It's like, whew. So, um, so I started paying attention to what I'm ruminating and thinking, you know, I really need to replace some of the negative stuff with biblical, great, beautiful messages. And so I've been trying to develop this skill. It's, it really is a skill. It's a discipline, a practice of meditating on good truths coming from Scripture. So I want to encourage you to develop that skill as well. 
and particularly places in Scripture that, that reinforce God's gospel message to us. Now, some of you are saying, how in the world did you get that from Zephaniah? Well, wait till I start. You'll really start wondering. Um, this is a tough book. I don't know if you've read it, but Mark says he's read it, and he's never preached on it. Are you all, were you, like, horrified? Did some of you, like, well, why not? So he'll be doing a three-week series starting next week. Ha <laughs> ha. No, he won't. I'm just kidding. But, but no, there's... there's um, by the way, I really want to encourage you to read it because for many reasons, it's part of God's word. God thought it would be important to include this. And, um, and, and it is, it is uh, uh, it, it's God's word. It's true. It's powerful. But it's only three chapters. So you can get through it kind of quickly. And this will save you embarrassment um, when you get to heaven. If, if you have been born again, if the blood of Christ covers you, you're forgiven of your sins, you, you, get, you get to go to heaven. You spend all eternity there. And there's a good likelihood, given the fact that it's all eternity, you might at some point bump into Zephaniah. And he's going to ask you, did you read my book? What are you going to say? I was so busy? There's only three chapters. And then he's going to, it's like, oh, so you had time for Obadiah. He's only one chapter, but no. Okay, so some of you say, I understand why he's got these mental problems. And now some of you are saying, I need to pray more for him. Good, please do. Uh, so, uh, but there's good reason why I think people skip this book. It's kind of a downer. I mean, like so many of the prophets, Zephaniah starts out on a pretty negative tone. Look at how he begins. Zephaniah begins, well, with just sort of the introductory, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amaliah, the, the son of Hezekiah during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, very nice. And then right, front, right out of the box, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animal. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Well, no wonder people aren't reading your book. They don't want to go any further than that. And he just continues on and on. The primary unifying uh, repeated theme of this whole entire book is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. On that day, on that day, Zephaniah keeps saying, and it's going to be a day of judgment. You get to uh, chapter 1, verse 15, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the corner of time. And it goes on and on and on. For three chapters, it's mostly negative. Now, some of you may be thinking, yeah, well, that's why I don't like the Old Testament. The Old Testament's full of wrath and judgment. I like the New Testament. I like Jesus. It's full of love and grace. I like those songs we were just singing. Where, where, where is that stuff? Well, uh, I want to encourage you, if you think that way, that's very, very common. People think the Old Testament's wrath, judgment, negative uh, New Testament, love, mercy, that, that's not really a fair reading of, of either part of the Bible. I, the, it is true that the Old Testament has a great deal about judgment and wrath, and so we must not just ignore that. But the Old Testament has incredible amounts of love and mercy and grace in it as well. Some of the loftiest things that are said about God's love and mercy are found in the Old Testament. We're going to get to just one verse where I'm going to zoom in in Zephaniah. I think it's some of the most beautiful statements of God's grace in all of Scripture. 
And the New Testament is indeed filled with love and grace. It's also filled with God's judgment. In fact, I believe a better way to read the scripture is to see these themes woven together of his wrath and his judgment and his love and his mercy building and building and building in intensity so that the crescendo, the highest point, the the strongest language of both themes is found at the very end of the book of Revelation. And the harshest terms about God's judgment are spoken by Jesus. So what we need to see is how, how are these themes woven together all the way through Scripture, and how are they resolved? And so we read and we read in Zephaniah, and uh, take a look at verse 8 and 9 of chapter 3, um, because this is a place where there's a hint, as so very often is the case in Scripture, in the prophets in particular, of some kind of way these themes will resolve. Verse 8 of chapter 3, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day, there he is again, I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them and all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the people, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Somehow this same God who who requires payment for sin also does the purifying and providing of the payment for sin. Now it's only hinted at here in Zephaniah, and it's only hinted at many, many places in the prophets where, where God says he is a God of wrath and he's a God of grace. And many of the prophets, the book finishes and you go, how, how is he going to resolve that? <laughs> Many of the prophets raise to the surface attention that they don't necessarily resolve. We have to read all of the prophets in light of all of the Old Testament, in light of all of Scripture. And it's only when we read the whole book that we go, oh, I see how he does it. He's a God of wrath. He's also a God of grace. He's a God who demands payment for sin. He's a God who provides payment for sin. And he's the one who sends an intermediary, someone who will just step in and purify. Um, Some of the Jewish rabbinic writings from centuries ago say that verse 9 of chapter 3 is one of those many prophetic hints at a provider of atonement, a Messiah, an anointed one who will satisfy God's wrath and his love and his mercy. And that's why when we get to verse 14 of chapter 3, it can make sense that we would sing. Do you see it in chapter 14? Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. And then the passage that I have been trying to ruminate over and meditate on, and I encourage you to do the same, verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is an amazing statement of how we can celebrate the fact that the God who created us is both a God of wrath and judgment and a God of love and mercy. I think the Old Testament is is an incomplete book. 
Um, many of you know I grew up Jewish, and we only had the Old Testament. And, and I read a great deal of it, and in preparation for my bar mitzvah and even beyond that, I read it, and it always seemed like it was pointing to some other thing yet to come. And it was only when I read the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, and said, oh, this is why they fit together. It's, by the way, why I, I, I wish I could figure out a better way to say it. I don't like talking about them as the Old Testament and the New Testament as if they're separate books. They're not. It's one book. It's God's Word. It's the Scriptures that has a preparing part and a fulfilling part. And so when we go back and read the old part, the preparation part, in light of having finished, we see, oh, this is how it fits together. And so if you have come to know this one, if in fact, um, you see in verse 9, go back to verse, it says, I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. There it is. It's a small little hint, but it's saying that we all need to respond to this revelation. It's not just enough to know that God is the Holy One who is both a judge and the loving one who is also a Savior. We also need to respond. We need to call upon. We need to say, okay, that's what I'm trusting in. That's why when Jesus met with Nicodemus, the religious Jewish man, and recorded in John chapter 3, he said to him, you're a teacher of Israel. You should know this, that you need to be born again. That was the first thing Jesus said, and he repeated it several times. You need to be born again. You need to be born from above. It's not just enough to know this theology so that you can answer theological questions accurately. You need to respond in repentance and faith and say, okay, yes, I, it, it makes sense for God to pour out his wrath on me. I am sinful. I am rebellious. I do worship other things. But in his mercy, he sent his Savior, and I can trust in him to be the one to, pay, to take that judgment for me. And if that's true for you, then look at verse 17. Five absolutely amazing blessings that we have if, in fact, we are in Messiah. The first one is, the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is in your midst. Um, it's easy to, to just kind of skim over this. Think about this, though. Um, the fact that he calls himself the Lord your God. It's a play on two different names of God. First one is Yahweh, this, this name of God that means he's this personal, intimate God you can know. But the next one, God, is, is a name for God. Of, he's, he's the creator of everything. He's the mighty all, over all of the nations, over all of time. And so to say that he's the Lord your God is this amazing statement. He's the one over all of creation, and yet you can know him intimately. And so it's this wonderful blessing that the Lord your God is with you, is in your midst. And the new covenant fulfillment of that is that when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. Ephesians 1 says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so one of the greatest blessings of being a believer is that the Lord is with us always, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances, no matter where we go, no matter what time of day, we can, we can con converse with him because he's, he's within us, he's in us. Second, he is mighty to save. Uh, that phrase, he, is, he, is, he is a warrior, uh, that term. He, he, he is capable of saving. He has the power to overcome death. So God is the one who pours out his wrath on his Savior, Jesus, for our, for our sins. But then he is powerful enough to lift him, raise him from the dead. And we can know that he can save us. He's powerful enough for that. You know, um, many years ago uh, when I was with Campus Crusade, we had a staff conference out in uh, Colorado. And we, we had this conference at Colorado State. 
And uh, Colorado State's campus has uh, facilities for lots of different conferences to go on at the same time. So here's the Campus Crusade group. Here's various different camps of uh, uh, athletes and different things going on. And, and one year we were there, there was also a, a, a conference on Jewish renewal, it said. It's about 200 Jewish people who had gathered from all over the country. And it was this conference about Judaism and Jewish renewal. And they invited us for an evening of dialogue one of the longest nights of my life. Um, so uh, there, were, there were three of us crusaders on one side of the stage. Could you think of a better term for, for relating to the Jewish audience? Crusaders, one of the high points of our history. Um, uh, and then three rabbis on this side, and they talked about what Judaism was, and we talked about Christianity, and talked about common uh, ground. And there was, uh, you know, we were each given a certain amount of time to speak and a certain amount of time to reflect, whatever. And um, we, on, on the Christian side, were trying to talk about how old and New Testaments fit together and all of this. And then toward the end of the evening, one of the rabbis said, you know, you, uh, uh, people, our, our friends here, our Christian friends, they keep talking about uh, a savior. They say that Jesus is a savior. Say, so, you know, Judaism has no concept whatsoever of a savior. Judaism has no place in mind for anything about a savior. And I started breaking out in hives. I, I, I wanted to raise my hand, but we had already used up our time, so we couldn't say anything. Judaism has no place for a savior. Are you kidding? It's one of the major themes in all of Judaism. God is our savior. I, Isaiah, the prophet, his name, Yeshiahu, it means uh, the Lord. He is our savior. I, I mean, God saves. Right? What is Passover all about? I mean, the, the whole New Testament flew before my eyes. And, um, but, I, but I wasn't allowed to talk. And so I've, I've uh, uh, once again, you see, some of you are saying, ruminating. Are you kidding? This guy needs is there medication for this. I mean, so... Um, no, the fact that God is a savior and that he saves and he delivers us, it's one of the most beautiful messages of all of scripture. But it, but it does have a negative aspect, doesn't it? Sort of the ultimate good news, bad news. <laughs> the good news is he's mighty to save. The bad news is you need a savior. <laughs> the fact that God calls himself a savior should have a humbling effect on us. It means I, I can't save myself. It means I've gotten myself into a mess that needs salvation. You know, Jesus' name, his name means Savior. Did you know? You knew that, right? That's why the angel pronounced that at his birth, um, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You'll call him Yeshua, the Hebrew name for it, because he will Yeshua his people from their sins. Um, one of the greatest things we can ever do is come to that humbling moment where we realize, I can't save myself. I must have a Savior. Oh, God is powerful to save. He overcame death by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Third, this is absolutely breathtaking. He takes delight in you. The Lord delights in you. He's thrilled that he's been able to woo you back to him. If you've come to that point where you are now declared to be his child, he delights over you. Do you believe it? I don't always believe it. I wrestle with it. I remember hearing a sermon several years ago uh, on audio. The preacher was talking about Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And the passage that he was zooming in on was um, about Jesus. For the joy set before him endured the cross. And this pastor said, for the joy set before him? Jesus, Jesus looked at the cross and thought it was joy? Why was it joy? 
It was going to be excruciatingly painful, both physically but even more so spiritually. All of the wrath of all sin was being poured out on him. How in the world could Jesus look at that and say that for the joy set before him? What was the joy, this pastor kept asking. And I remember where I was. I was driving and I got to where I was supposed to be going and I pulled over to the side of the road and parked and I, I didn't want to go in yet because I had to listen. Well, what's, the, what's the answer? And, and he said, well, what does Jesus get as a result of the cross? He gets pain and judgment and... And, um, and it's, it, it probably isn't just that he's going to go back to be the, with the Father. He had that already, so it's going to be reunited. But what does he get as a result of the cross that he didn't have before? The pastor said, he gets you. He gets me. He gets us. Sinful people who had run away and rebelled against him and who are now alienated, he gets us back. He wins us back. He delights over that. Isn't that wonderful? And then it gets better. Fourth, he says he will quiet you with his love. Do you see that there? He will quiet you with his love. He will give you a sense of, of shalom, of peace, of rest that you can't find anywhere else. We look for rest and peace and quietness in quietness, just being still. But that doesn't last. Somebody turns on, you know, starts their lawnmower or noise, noise, noise. Or, or we try to find it in, in a vacation. And vacations are wonderful and it's really great. But then there are noisy kids at the blanket right next to you on the beach. Maybe I'm the only one who struggles with this. I'm sorry if I just ruined your vacation. I'm very sorry. No matter where we search and look for, it's always, it's always conditional. It's always fragile. But imagine a love from God that is so complete. See, it's already been paid. That's why the scriptures, uh, Romans says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus, the Messiah, said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will quiet you with his love, and I want to encourage you to meditate and think about all of, what, what kind of a love is it? It's a, it's a, it's a love that is based on the, on the finished work of the atonement of the cross. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's breathtaking. It's ineffably sublime, to use the phrase from a hymn. And then one more, perhaps the best of the whole list. In verse 17, the Lord is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. With singing. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you know, singing is a very big deal in the Bible. You know that, right? I think, I, I think the last time I was here, I preached about how music is a very important part of the Christian life. We're commanded over a hundred times in the Psalms and elsewhere to sing to the Lord. Singing, it's, it's a sign of spiritual emotional health. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an evidence of the fullness of the Spirit. Remember in Ephesians 5, we were to be filled with the Spirit, and, and one of the signs of that is, is singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. If someone's walking down the street and they're singing out loud, you think, oh, this person's really happy. If, if, if they're just talking, you want to stay away from them. And then you, oh, maybe they got an earpiece and they're talking on the phone, but if they don't have any earpiece whatsoever and they're, they're just talking, you go, oh, I, I hope someone helps that person sometime. But if they're singing, you almost want to join in with them. And don't you just sometimes find yourself just singing during the day for no reason? It's like, oh, this must be, it's like, it's like I can't contain it. Uh, uh, singing is this sign of, of an overflow of an emotion that can't be expressed with just words or just stating things. And um, 
Uh, singing also enables us to connect with some of the deepest, uh, most painful things that can't be expressed with just words. So sometimes when we're lamenting, um, we cry out and we sing. Um, I, I, my guess is some of you have been to, to, to funerals, memorial services, where people say things and you say things and you recite things, but then you, when you sing, that's when the tears flow. Because singing enables you to, to, to find this, this deep, deep emotion that can't be expressed any other way. But look carefully at this. This passage isn't talking about us singing. It's about God singing. I, I've been studying this for a while. I think this is the only place in all of the scriptures where we're told that God sings. I may be wrong. If some of you find another place, let me know. It's certainly one of only a very, very few. It's certainly not hundreds like we are commanded to sing to the Lord. This is, I think, the only place where it says that God is the one who sings. And look what he's singing about. Look who he's singing about. He's singing about you. He's singing about me. He's singing about us. Um, this, this singing term, um, it's, it's, a, it's a shout of joy. It's a, there are several different terms for singing, but this is, this is one that is so overflowing with joy. It, it's, it's not the normal singing. It's, it's, I don't know the right, there is no English word, but it's singing with an, with an ultimate expression of joy. He sings over you. If you have come back to him, if he has won you back, if you've come to that point where you rejoice at the Savior who paid for the penalty of sin, if you've been born again, if you're in Messiah, he sings over you. That's worth ruminating over, isn't it? That's worth dwelling on and giving thanks for and asking God to have that joy permeate so deep down that you start singing. I know I've told you a bunch of stories over the years about my research where I interviewed new believers, and maybe I think I even have told this story, but it, it bears repeating. Um, I interviewed dozens of uh, new believers in Jesus, and I remember talking to this one young woman, and she told me about how um, she grew up in a home without any real religion, really. She came away to college her freshman year. Um, she signed up for a whole bunch of different things. And uh, her birthday was in September, so she was kind of feeling a little anxious about her birthday because it was early in the freshman year. Nobody knew her yet. Um, but one of the things she had signed up for was, a, a, you know, different kind of clubs, and, and people found her on Facebook. And on her birthday, a group of Christian students who had found out about her signing up for different things, and they brought her a birthday cake toward the end of September. And they, she didn't even know them. How did you know it was my birthday? Well, we saw your date on your Facebook page, and, you know, so they sang happy birthday, and they gave her a cake. She was just delighted. And so she started going to their Bible study. And she said, uh, she says, you know, I've, I've just never even read any part of the Bible. I, I should, they, they told me I should read the Gospels in the beginning of the New Testament. So I started reading them. She said, I got to the end of Matthew and I just started crying. <laughs> and, and so then I, I read the Gospel of Mark and I got to the end and I just started crying again. And she said, every time I got to the end of one of the Gospels, I just started crying. And she's sitting in this really crowded part of campus, people walking all over the place, and just a lot of, a lot of activity around, around. And she just starts crying right there in front of all these people. And I said, okay, so, so tell me, what, what, what was it? What was going on when you got to the end of these Gospels that made you cry? And, and she was having a hard time pulling it together. She finally said, he did that for me. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that breathtaking? 
Doesn't it make you want to sing? He sings over you. He delights over you with joy. Um, May that uh, soften and remake our hearts as we meditate on it. Will you allow me to close us in prayer? Our Father and our God, uh, Yahweh, Lord our God, um, would you help us to get it? Would, would, you, would you have this breakthrough and, and dig down deep? Because uh, we're distracted by so many things and, and we're doubtful of so many things. And we, we even find it hard to grasp. But would you help us grasp it in such, such a, a deep, amazing way? that we would, we would rejoice over the fact that you delight over us and that you sing over us. And may we sing in response because of all that you did for us in Jesus' death on the cross. We pray this in his name. Amen.